Welcome to episode four of the CrossGen Life podcast. I'm Dr. Rich Melheim, recording this on a hot and humid summer day, hidden away in a secret lakeside log cabin somewhere in southern Minnesota. In the episodes ahead, the CrossGen Life podcast will bring you thought leaders and systems change pioneers, movers and shakers and systems breakers from across the church and society, working to connect the wisdom of the elder and the wonder of the child in the same sacred space each week. Today's episode is part four of a six-part series. The topic is Disruptive Change and the Exodus Today. It features Dr. David Lowe's, founder of WorkingPreacher.org, former seminary president at Lutheran School of Theology at Philadelphia, and currently senior pastor at Mount Olivet Lutheran Church in Minneapolis. David's talk was recorded live at a recent CrossGen Life conference in Estes Park, Colorado. You can find more about our upcoming October 2018 conference at crossgenconference.com. Here's Dr. David Lowe's. All right, second one, um, language. Uh, in, in, the, in the modern world, there is one reality, uh, and language at its best mirrors that reality. It describes it. It represents it. Language is a passive tool that reflects reality. In the postmodern world, language is far more active, productive, even creative. Language and culture more generally are the means by which we produce and sustain the social reality that sets the terms for almost all of our interactions. Language, in this sense, doesn't simply reflect our experience, but actually creates it. In fact, the postmodern would say, you cannot experience those things you cannot name. Not fully, not really. Until you can name something, you can't really say you've experienced it. Now, the stock example of this, which, which I s- still think is kind of interesting, is to think about the number of words uh, that Inuit tribes have for our word snow. Uh, and so, and it's not, and, and those different words then allow them to experience different types of precipitation that are not like dry snow or wet snow, but are like hail versus rain versus sleet versus snow that there's this productive quality of language that enables you to experience uh, a reality that that language itself creates. Or think about in our social interactions or uh, tensions around ethnicity and race. If you grew up in a home that characterized someone who was different from you with a whole set of language and how much that predisposes you to see, to experience, to expect certain things from that person. Or not, and how as your experience changed, so does your language. Or sometimes what happens, think about gender-inclusive language in the church. As you adopted a more gender-inclusive language, your experience of God might have followed. It wasn't that suddenly your experience of Father uh, seemed somehow inadequate or whatever. It is that as you began to think about it in a different way, the way you had potential to experience God changed as well. So language, not passive, merely descriptive, but productive, active. Um, A third word, the big one, truth. In the modern word, truth is always something that just is out there. It exists. Uh, uh, It's the same in all times and all places, and it's just waiting to be discovered and described and in some ways put to work. Uh, In the postmodern world, truth becomes the name we apply to those things that the dominant culture has tacitly agreed to. 
It's a social construction that cannot be proved and often has been disproved. One of the uh, really prolific uh, postmodern theorists, like a Frenchman by the name of Jacques Derrida, uh, at one point said, wrote an essay where he described how frequently we've defined a center to our field of studies, to our sense of what it is to be human, to, I mean, you name it, have defined a center. And the center then changed completely. Um, and it, yeah, it wreaked some havoc, but then we found ourselves we, okay again, and we defined another center. What Derrida pointed out is that centers, what you decide is the absolute truth, change all the time. What doesn't change is our need to have a truth, to need to have a center to stand on. Um, power, one more important one. Uh, in the modern world, power always comes from aligning yourself with reality, with truth. This is Francis Bacon's great statement, knowledge is power. Right? The more you are aligned with reality, the more powerful you become. Uh, in the postmodern world, um, those, what the postmodernists would argue is that the people who are in power and who have power, they get to tell you what's true. They get to tell you what counts. So Michel Foucault, another French postmodernist, inverts Bacon's dictum and says, no, it's not knowledge is power. Power is knowledge. One really quick example that I, that I think helpfully illustrates this. So when I was in college, uh, for a while I was uh, a psychology major and eventually ended up minoring in that. But part of that experience was I got to spend some time working in what was called a partial mental hospital. This was uh, not a state hospital. It was for people who were out of the state institution uh, and they were often living in group homes, but it was the place that provided day programming and occupational training and also therapy uh, and medication and all of that, so kind of daytime. And, and during that work, I became very familiar with the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association called the DSM. Uh, and I think we're now at a place that continues to be revised over the years, and I think we're now at a DSM-5, if I remember. Um, people who have done CP more recently will, will know better than I. At that time, so this is a long time ago, at that time we were at the DSM-3R. Now what the R meant was it stood for revision. It wasn't a totally different book, so they, it wasn't enough change that they felt like it was time to call it DSM-4. It was just a minor revision that they felt couldn't wait uh, and so they wanted to do, and they wanted to mark that. And one of the few changes that they made was that in DSM-3, homosexuality was defined as a mental illness. And DSM-3R removed that. Now think for just, wherever you may be on the spectrum of physicians related to homosexuality, it almost doesn't matter for this example. Think for a moment of the power when one group gets to say, your being, your kind of person is mentally ill. Or, no, you're not. Like, that's an incredible amount of power. And that's what Foucault is saying. Those who are in power get to tell us what true knowledge is. Um, last one I want to look at real quickly is just the whole question of what it is to be human. The modern era, uh, we come to define ourselves as a species as homo sapiens sapiens. Right? This is the anthropological definition. It is, uh, it is the thinking being, or actually it's sapiens sapiens, the being who can think about our own thinking. It's this the ability to consciously reflect, to critically think. It's the rationality of Descartes and the other modernists. In the postmodern world, what we probably more accurately describe ourselves as is homo neurons. We are a narrative being. 
We are the storytelling animal. We are the people who continually spin stories to help us find a stable place in the universe and to create some community and give us some hope. Now, the tremendous challenge of postmodernity, just, and I know this is kind of like 20 minutes on things that people write whole books on or sets of books on, but I hope it gives you a bit of a sense of the world that we've been kind of living in and the dramatic change, which really in a lot of ways pivots around World War II, post-World War II, uh, and the 70s. I mean, that era, you know, the, the late 40s to the 70s is when this is all beginning to come to ferment. Uh, and now we're living at a time where a lot of these things are clashing and being contested. Um, and how much change that's going on. So the tremendous challenge of being in the postmodern era, of course, is that truth itself seems totally up for grabs. How do you talk about truth? Uh, if everyone around you or every postmodern person around you says, yeah, I don't buy it. I think it's a load of crap. You know, there is no truth, right? And what's interesting to me is that when the postmodern, I mean, I think, I think my, my sense of, of one of our responses to postmodernity is to do something that's actually very postmodern, to call assumptions into question. So when the postmodernist says, there is no truth, I kind of want to say, gosh, it sounds like you believe that's true. <laughs> what do we make of that? <laughs> you know, or there is no meta narrative, there's no grand narrative. I want to say, I wonder if that functions kind of like a grand narrative for you. Right? And so, so the challenge is it can feel like tr the naming truth becomes a much dicier venture. But I think what it pushes us to is to maybe m accept some of the critiques of modernity and the way in which that the quest for certainty can really quash dissident voices or different voices or creating a center can push people to accept that critique, critique but also to recognize we don't live well without being able to make truth claims, without finding a place to stand. So the question becomes, can we, can we articulate our faith as a claim, or better, as a confession, instead of as a theorem, or a dictum, or a dogma? And this, I think, draws us back to an earlier observation that in some ways, elements of our faith life will be more like the pre-modern church than the modern church where we're called to live once again by faith alone, which means that truth can be confessed and truth can be professed, but what truth can never be is possessed. You're never able to say, this is the truth, I own it, I know it. I don't care how many people try to copyright the DNA <laughs> code. Finally, truth cannot be owned. So there's a way in which I think the invitation is, how do we make bold, um, Confessions of faith that are also equally humble, which means that although you believe them and live out of them and confess and profess them, you'll never remove them beyond the pale of critical review or critique. You'll never say to someone, you can't ask that question. You'll never say, just, you just, just believe. That's, that question is ruled out of bounds. Um, and when I was talking about this once with a, with a group of, of folks in a congregation, uh, set of congregations in Wisconsin, um, one gentleman said, and it, it wasn't an angry question, uh, I think it was a really grieved question. He said, so when my son comes home from college and says, I don't believe in God anymore, Dad, I'm an atheist, I'm just supposed to say that's awesome? And I said, no, I don't think you need to say that's awesome, but I think it'd be really cool if you said, huh, what's been going on in your life that has led you here? 
what are some of the questions that you've been wrestling with? What are some of the things you've been struggling with? And having listened to him, perhaps gained enough credibility to speak also. Because part of the postmodern condition, one of, one of my professors at Princeton, um, Denny Olson, Old Testament scholar, said that in some ways our challenge is how do we move between the tower of modernity that wants to know and be certain of everything and the absolute babble of postmodernity? You know, how do we wend our way through that? And the, one of the things we need to recognize is that our, our, we all, but particularly our emerging generation, is simply saturated, if not besieged, by stories. They're having people talk at them and to them all the time, and those voices want something from them. And so in this day and age, to just say more is just to add your voice to the countless cacophony of all the other voices saying things. You need to earn a hearing with this generation, and the way you earn that hearing is by listening. So can we value questions? Uh, can we value uh, doubt as an essential part of faith? instead of imagining it's something to be overcome. When, uh, oh, this is about, um, probably about eight years ago or nine years ago or so, we were still living in St. Paul, uh, and it was Easter time, and uh, even though we lived like literally 300 yards from the church, or maybe because we lived 300 yards from the church, we're always late. <laughs> and, uh, and so we're going to Easter, and we're late. And you know what happens to you at Easter when you're late? you got to sit all the way up front. <laughs> and so we're in the front pew, like here, and the pulpit is there, and we're at the side. So the preacher is facing this way, uh, and he is preaching a really fine Easter sermon filled with conviction and, and, and biblical and everything you could want. And my daughter Katie, who is a seven at the time, leans over to me and whispers, Daddy, I don't think Jesus really was raised from the dead. I think maybe his friends just missed him so much they wanted that to be true. I was blown away by the depth of that question and terrified by the one that followed. Daddy, what do you think? <laughs> what I wanted to answer was like, <laughs> it's Easter. <laughs> you know? And the preacher's right there. <laughs> yeah. And even if it's true, daddy needs a job. <laughs> like all this kind of stuff is going on. <laughs> what I said instead, and I still think it's an inadequate response, because it was Easter and the preacher was right there preaching away, I said, you know, honey, that's a really great question. How about if we talk about it after church? And of course, church comes afterwards. I said, you know, honey, I was really, really struck by that question. Do you want to talk about it a little more? No, it's okay. <laughs> you know, so seize those moments. <clears throat> but that's the, I think that's the postmodern invitation to recognize that doubt and question and skepticism is part and parcel of the faithful life and to make room for that. And that our job isn't to convert people, it's to confess and to leave the burden of conversion on the strong and broad shoulders of the Holy Spirit. Now, sometimes I think when we talk about confessing rather than proving, which was kind of the, the, the church, if it fell into a ditch in modernity, it was the need to prove. And in some ways, this is in a nutshell, this is what fundamentalism is. Fundamentalism is modernity squared. 
It assumes the presumptions of modernity. If it's true, you have to be able to prove it, and it applies that to the realm of faith. And so biblical inerrancy or creationism or all of that stuff are finally attempts to, to, to bolster a sense that you can prove this stuff and any rational person will agree with you. Um, and our call is something different, to confess. And confession can at times feel like a weak word. But I think it is, it is our word and it's faithful to the God who shows up in places of weakness, in the incarnation, in the cross, and in the brokenness of our fellowship and lives together. But I also think it's a peculiarly powerful word. Um, in order to offer that weak and powerful, that bold and humble word, though, you need to be ready to be vulnerable. You, because you are putting yourself on the line. When you say, I can't prove this, but I really believe it, you then acknowledge someone else's validity in rejecting it. And because you care about it, it will feel like a rejection of you, even though it's usually not. It reminds me of, and I'll go back to yes, it reminds me of a Seinfeld episode. <laughs> where George Costanza decides that he's just so taken with a woman that he's been dating, he decides finally it's time to tell her that he loves her. So he turns to her and says, I love you. And she doesn't say anything. Absolutely silent. Uh, and, and, then he f and he's devastated. And then he finds out later that she's deaf in one ear. <laughs> so then the next time they're out, he makes sure that he's on the other side of her. And then he turns and says, I love you. And she says, I heard you the first time. <laughs> right, so there's a, there's a little element of confession that's always like that. You're always kind of putting yourself out there for the sake of making a truth claim. And, and confession is, is more like love, uh, or faith is more like love than it is anything else. All right, so... What I want to do with the couple minutes left, and we can, we can play with this as we go forward, I want to think about some of the Exodus story in light of that. And before we go to Exodus 3, um, I want to kind of remind us of where Exodus starts, right? This is putting in context again. So Genesis is the story of beginnings, the story of origins, origin of the world, origin of humanity, origin of the Israelites, and it follows the story of the patriarchs and the matriarchs, and it ends with the story of Joseph, who was cast out by his brothers but goes to Egypt and ends up, up in a position of power with the Pharaoh and uh, saves Egypt and the surrounding territories from famine by his prudential leadership. Um, Exodus 3 then starts with that in mind, uh, or Exodus 1 rather, starts with that in mind after kind of the usual recitation of characters to bring you up to speed or the descendants of generations to link what came before and came now. Um, it starts with this uh, rather ominous verse. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Right? And if this were a film, this is where the music would get dark. Dun, 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 dun. Who did not know Egypt. And then begins to say, and he said to the people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we are. Come, let us do sh deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase, and in the event of war, they'll join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Now, I just want to pause there for a moment and ask, what story is this person operating out of? Like, it's a story of scarcity and fear, because there's nothing in the text to indicate that the Israelites were ready to join their enemies. And yet, when you have that as your story, it's very difficult to react with compassion or creativity when fear is your story. And so he demands that the, that the midwives kill the Israelite children, the Israelite boys that are coming out of the womb. But uh, 
Shifra and Pua, two of the midwives, do not because they operate from a different story. And that story is that God is more powerful than Pharaoh and life is sacred. So there's this kind of interesting clashing of stories. And Moses then, for that reason, is spared and saved and adopted and brought into Pharaoh's home and grows up um, and eventually begins to, is a part of the dominant culture, the dominant story, sees the suffering of his people, kills one of the Egyptians, flees for his life, right? This is the, the quick overview of the story, and then finds himself out uh, in Midian as a shepherd. And then uh, chapter 3 begins this way. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame out of a bush, uh, and he looked, and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. And then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here am I. And then he said, come closer, remove the sandals from your feet for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. And he said further, I am the Lord your God, uh, the Lord your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. And then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come to deliver them. Now, God makes this unbelievable promise. And then the next thing Moses says is really, really peculiar. He says, okay, cool, paraphrasing again. <laughs> but let's just say, Lord, that I go to the Israelites uh, and I tell them that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me to deliver you what if they say, well, what is that God's name? Who is the God who's sending you? And what's weird about that is we're kind of like, what? You're like, you want God's business card? Like, what is going on, Moses? And what we don't realize is the power of names in the ancient culture. Because names in the ancient culture always revealed the character of the person who bore that name. It tells something incredibly true about you, which means the people who know your true name know your true character and therefore have a hold over you, have some power on you. So a lot of people would have two names. They'd have kind of a use name, the name their friends called them, and then they'd have their true name that only those close to them knew because to know that person. This is like when you have that friend or spouse or partner or parent who can, the one person who can say to you, knock it off, I know you. <laughs> call you to account because they know who you are. And so when Moses says, um, Lord, tell me your name, he's not asking for a calling card. He's saying, show yourself, make yourself vulnerable. Let me have some power over you. I will not take on this risk unless I'm sure you're there too. I will not be that vulnerable, Lord. And then God answers and reveals the divine name the name considered so holy that devout Jews of this day will not speak it aloud. And it is the name, do you remember? I am who I am. The interesting thing about that Hebrew, though, is that it's a tense that has a, a bit of present but also a bit of future sense to it. So it can also be translated, I will be who I will be, which I think is God's way of saying to Moses, back off. I will be who I will be, which is also an invitation. If you want to know who I am, Moses, you've got to come along for the ride. You will see who I am as you see how I act in your life and in the world, which reminds me that faith was never meant to be a head kind of thing. 
Never. But it also was never meant to be a heart kind of thing only either. And this is the great clash in our religious tradition. Orthodoxy, it's about thinking right. Pietism, it's about feeling the right things. Faith was meant to be an experience. Faith was meant to be a relationship. Faith was meant to be going along in all of the vulnerability and seeing what happens and knowing that only at the end will you really know who this God is. That's what we're about. Is there some knowledge? Absolutely. Are there uh, feelings and experiences to cultivate? Absolutely. But finally, what we're doing is an invitation to a new generation to know God by going along, by risking vulnerability in order to be known by the one living holy God. There's more to say. The story's not over. We'll come back. But for now, go in peace. Serve the Lord. Amen. And, uh, and the archetype of modernity in this sense is the library. When you go to the library, there are two kinds of stories. There are fiction and there are nonfiction. Nonfiction are the ones that conform to the reality of the world, and fiction are the ones that play off of that, and that's all there is. Narrative from a postmodern point of view um, is everything. <clears throat> that is, there are multiple and competing stories out there about reality, and none of them can be proven to be true. The one you happen to believe at the moment, you call reality, capital R. Uh, and yet, that, while that functions as your standard story or your grand narrative or your meta-narrative, these are all terms that kind of float in the postmodern literature, it's still a story. And you recognize that every once in a while. So, for instance, a, a lot of the friendships my wife and I had when our kids were growing up were formed around the activities that they did. You know, you just spend a certain amount of time at the pool or at the school or whatever, and, and you get to know the other parents that are there. So, you know, imagine you're at the uh, wrestling meets or at your pool and you've become friends with someone and you've gotten to know them reasonably well and they've gotten to know you and all of a sudden the talk turns to politics during an election season and you find yourself thinking, I always thought you were intelligent. <laughs> right? Because they, they disagree with you. They're voting for the other candidate. And then you realize, if I say any more, she's going to think the same thing about me. And, and what, you realize, what, what I've realized at times is we're, we're reading more or less the same news or watching the same events, but interpreting it in totally different ways. So coming off the first incredibly dismal presidential debate a week ago, and then hearing some people say, oh my word, Trump just nailed it, Hillary won. I mean, it's kind of like, w were you watching the same debate? You know, so you just sort of, there's what, there's this clash of really profound stories. Um, that's the, and our awareness of that is multiplied in an internet access world because you can read something from the New York Times, you can read something from Al Jazeera, you can put them side by side, and they can reflect two totally different worldviews. So that's kind of the, the postmodern insight. It's, it's all story, and you just tend to accept one and then use that story to interpret your life, to interpret the evidence, to even decide what counts as evidence, and to create the possibility of some experiences that otherwise would be unavailable to you if you had a different story. That was part four in a series of six on disruptive change in the church today. Thanks to Dr. David Lowe's of Mount Olivet Lutheran in Minneapolis. This talk was recorded live at a recent Cross Gen Life conference in Estes Park, Colorado. 
if you'd like to attend a future CrossGen conference, including the one coming up in October, you can find out the latest information at crossgenconference.com. You can also find out more information about Faith 5 at faith5.org and about the great CrossGen life curriculum and resources at faithinc.com, F-A-I-T-H-I-N-K.com. I'm Dr. Rich for the CrossGen Life Podcast, reminding you that in CrossGen Life, every age has gifts we need and every age has needs we get.